This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and this morning we're extremely fortunate to have Arlen Myers. He's the president and CEO of the Society of Physicians Entrepreneurs. He's also a radio co-host of Colorado Business Roundtable. He's a professor emeritus of otolaryngology, dentistry, and engineering at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Arlen, thank you for taking time this morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about what you're doing with the Society of Physicians and who you serve. So the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is a uh, global biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship network. Our mission is to help our members, which are fairly eclectic, and we can talk about that, get their ideas to patients. And basically, everyone I know in science, engineering, and health professions have a good idea, but they don't know what to do with it. And typically, it goes down the drain in the shower. Maybe you had two or three good ideas this morning, and they went down the drain. So how do you translate the idea to something that creates value for a patient. And that process, which we refer to in sick care, I call it sick care because it's not health care. I mean, we have a $3.2 trillion so-called health care spend, which is really masquerading as a sick care system. It's a sick care system. 90-something percent of the budget goes toward taking care of sick people. So I'm an ear, nose, and throat, a recovering ear, nose, and throat surgeon, an otolaryngologist. So I spent my career at the Anschutz Medical Campus and the University of Colorado School of Medicine teaching people how to do surgery and that kind of stuff. And I've had a fairly complicated medical career, but the bottom line is I didn't like the idea of how all this was playing out in terms of innovation. And I felt that for a very long time and to a certain extent today, the two most important components of the innovation supply chain, the doctor and the patient, were ignored. It was basically the biomedical industrial complex that came up with bright, shiny objects and said, hey, these are great. Why don't you buy them for this ridiculous cost? So now we wind up with high cost, low value stuff. Why? Because of a number of reasons, but one of them is because we didn't engage end users early enough in what would contemporary thought be described as design thinking as lean startup methodology, as consumer engagement, as customer discovery, blah, 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 blah. Normal. So I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really stupid. So I just decided with some other folks to do something about it. So when, we, when, when did you decide? Well, this is something that I have been involved with for a fairly long time. Mm -hmm. I graduated business school in 1984. In those days, having someone with a white coat sitting next to pinstripes was pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So I've always kind of had this bug about the business of science and the business of medicine. I think part of it comes from my background. My dad was a pharmacist. He was a son of an immigrant. It was kind of the great generation, depression, World War II, immigration, the whole drill. He worked like a dog. And basically was the embodiment of the American dream. Lived in a nice house and this usual story. So I kind of took a look at that and I said, maybe that's where this entrepreneurial thing came from. Mm -hmm. My first job was working in his corner drugstore. He was a pharmacist by trade. He actually did meteorology in the Second World War, but I guess that's the army and you know that. 
Anyway, he comes back from the Second World War, opens a corner drugstore in a fairly ethnic neighborhood in downtown Philly, where I'm from. So I'm, my job is packing little capsules. In those days, they didn't manufacture capsules. You had these clear gelatin capsules in these little pull-out drawers, like the pharmacy drawers. And they were like triple O, double O, O. They were sort of like fly fishing, fly sizing. And he would mix up the stuff. And my job was to pack the stuff into the capsules and put them in a place where he would put them in a jar and put a label. I mean, so I'm in this store watching all this going on, the fountains and people coming in and out. It was really, it it was a different day in the drugstore days. It was a very different day. It was a community health center. Now, the interesting thing about that is we're going back to that because I do some work with some independent pharmacy associations. Mm -hmm. And the analogy is pretty interesting because now there's, of course, big box consolidation pharma Mm -hmm. versus independent pharmacists. And now there's big medicine versus small medicine. Mm -hmm. So the analogy is the independent pharmacists are actually doing reasonably well. So the question is, if you're one of the declining numbers of doctors in a private practice, independently owned, and those numbers, employed physicians going up, independently owned practices going down. And the latest information is maybe two-thirds now of doctors work for somebody else. And the typical story is I got tired of the paperwork and the bureaucracy. Exactly. So amongst a bunch of other stuff, but that's the bottom line. So now the question is, how does small med- what I call small medicine mm-hmm. survive versus big medicine? And I grew up in that in the pharmacy world. It was the same thing. And I think there's a lot of industries where consolidation is forcing part of the boutique thing to rethink their business model and how do we provide service or data or whatever it takes to be successful as a smaller entity in a big box world to be successful. So that's how I got wrapped up in all of this. And so now, fast forward a bunch of years, I don't practice medicine anymore. I retired as an emeritus professor after 40 years of doing it. And part of the reason I did it was because I got really interested in this stuff. And part of the reason was that I felt I could make a bigger impact doing what I do now in the big picture than I could treating one patient at a time 20 a day for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I help somebody. But in terms of the big picture. Hard to ding the universe on a one-off. Yeah. So I figured I'll try to fix sick care Mm -hmm. instead of trying to fix one sick person. So that's what I'm doing. Within the society and the various members, let's say I'm a, a society member and I have an idea and it's on the kitchen table where most ideas die. And I go, I want to reach out to your organization to help get my idea off the table. What does that look like? So what that looks like is I tell people that our organization is a cross between Match.com and Rotary. We're a huge dating service. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. We make dates. We don't make babies. So we make dates via an international chapter network, Rotary. So If you have an idea and you have no clue what to do with it, then what you do is you join SOAP and it costs $75 a year. And that's a whole nother story because doctors are cheap and they don't want to pay money and they're grumpy about associations, et cetera. So 
Again, it's a long story, but we're going to make this really easy for you to do this, doctor or scientist or engineer, mm-hmm. whatever. So you pay a couple of bucks and you sign up and you go to or you create a chapter, which is basically like a meetup mm-hmm. for biomedical and clinical innovation. I refer to it as a place where ideas go to have sex. Mm-hmm. So you go to this place and you talk with people who are there and you say, whether it's behavioral health or digital health or a drug or a device or a care model or whatever, and the membership is, it's an open innovation network. So anybody can join, not just health professionals. So about half the members are health professionals, doctors, engineers, scientists, anything, mm-hmm. occupational therapists, pharmacists, dentists, etc. And you talk to these other people. So that's how it works. So you basically show up and you talk to people. And you say, you know, I have this idea. What do you think? How do you protect your idea? We don't have ideas. The individual has an idea. So the individual, we make them aware and they have to be smart about how they manage their intellectual property. Okay. You don't give away the secret sauce. I mean, that's their responsibility. But most folks don't understand that. So we educate them. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. Don't do that. Should you sign this? Should you do that? How do you move this thing along? so that mutual interests are protected. Mm -hmm. So the answer is we educate people about that's one very small part of getting an idea to a patient is the intellectual property thing. So we have to educate people about how to do it. So don't give away the secret sauce until you're ready to. Mm -hmm. Cover yourself with an NDA and all that stuff. So Yeah. yeah. And for you, you mentioned that you had started a business. Right. So the way this happened was, so I'm an academic ENT surgeon and I'm doing my deal and publisher parish and create research and get grants and the usual academic shtick. So long story short, myself and several other people within the university and one outside uh, created a device to optically detect cancer. Mm -hmm. So the basic idea is, and so it's in the realm of bioengineering, and a subsegment of that called biophotonics, which means the interaction of light with matter. In this case, it's the interaction of light with human tissue. Mm-hmm. Now, since I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, and since I had done a lot of work in oral cancer, my interest was creating a device so that when you came to see me and you had something in your mouth that you were worried about, we stick a device in your mouth, and it's like a Geiger counter for cancer. Instead of radioactivity, the device tells us without biopsying it. So it basically does an opt, what's called an optical biopsy. Mm-hmm. So the idea is using physics and light and all that stuff. It tells us whether you have something to worry about or not. Mm-hmm. And that's how we started. Now, so what that taught me, that experience mm-hmm. of working with people, of intellectual property, of product development, of spinning out a company, of finding the money, all that business. So what that taught me was, A, everybody I know has a good idea. B, they have absolutely no idea what to do with it, including me. I had no clue how to do this. I'm an ENT doctor at the university. You know, so we Did you have to do the FDA thing as well? Yes. That was new learning. So we had to go through all the regulatory issues and all that business. Meanwhile, I'm trying to make a living being an academic doc and go up the food chain. So I'm saying, gee, this is pretty complicated. And it was basically OJT. So that was the second thing I learned that I don't know what the hell I'm doing. 
and I'm sure a lot of other people don't know. And the third thing was no one was going to teach me how to do it in medical school, in residency, as a part of a medical association or a science. So I said, you know what? That's not right. So we're going to create something to teach people how to do this. That's why we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. There was a gap. There was a knowledge gap, a market gap. And meanwhile, everybody's ignoring the doctor and the patient. Now, when you fast forward these days, all the chatters about value-based care, well, the irony is we're going to pay you to deliver value-based care. The dirty little secret is we're not going to teach you how to do it. So that's another stupid thing. So I'm saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. So that's why I got involved with this thing. Then I got involved with Global Minded. Global Minded is a global nonprofit student education network. And basically, our mission there is to create a diverse talent pipeline. So it's about equity, diversity, inclusion, the hidden curriculum, addressing unmet student needs, first-generation dropout rates, all that stuff. The four-year graduation rate for first-generation student to college is 11%. So, Were you first-generation college or no? I wasn't, but dad was my first- dad, yeah, my dad, he was a pharmacy professor, so he went to school. So, no, I was not a first-generation yeah, kid. I was first-generation. But, I mean, I saw all these people and, and what was going on, so, and that's not right. So, how does all this fit in with healthcare? Well, a number of ways. First of all, I'm trying to get ideas to patients. In order to do that, you need people who know how to do it to get ideas to patients. Well... I just can't rely on a handful of folks who go to MIT. Mm -hmm. It has to be an entire population. In fact, we're doing some projects with what I call patient entrepreneurs, because who knows better? Everyone has had a terrible experience. Well, there's the lady here in town, Martha Carlin, and her husband was diagnosed at 44 with Parkinson's, and she got mad about it. Exactly. And she started digging into the gut biome. Exactly. And she has gone... That's what I'm saying. Miles down that road and... Right. Yeah. There's nothing more dangerous than an entrepreneur who makes it personal but doesn't take it personally. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what drives these people because this is really hard and you have to have that drive. And what creates that drive is an emotional core. Sometimes you'll see the entrepreneur work past common sense level. The average person goes, you'd have quit a long time ago. For you, when you did your business for the optical and view, anywhere in the process, did you go out there and go, I wonder if there's a market for this? Well, actually, I didn't know. I suspected there was a market for it because that's what I did for a living. And I'm one of the people that needed this technology. So, But just because you're a doctor and you think somebody needs it doesn't mean somebody needs it. So you have to go out and do the research and actually figure it out. No, by the way. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. And typically in medicine, some guy in Germany invented what you think was new in 1847 or something. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to go through all the drill of figuring, do you have freedom to operate? Is there a market? Is there a product market fit? All that stuff. But the fact is that you're pretty driven. I also make the point that people say, well, so you're just about getting people to create businesses. No, I'm not. So entrepreneurship, in my view, is not just about creating businesses. And unfortunately, that's the way the entrepreneurship eco-devo system works. That's the way the entrepreneurship education system works. It's not just about creating a business. My view of entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity 
with uncontrolled resources or an environment of uncertainty. But the goal is to create user-defined value through the deployment of innovation. Solutions. Find a solution. Find a solution. It does not have to be a company. There's a million different ways to create patient-defined value without creating a company. So I am not, A, I am not in the business of just teaching people how to create a company. Secondly, I am not in the business of making entrepreneurs. In other words, I can't teach anybody anything. I've done it for 45 years. And that's not a new idea. Galileo said it. Newton's. I mean, the basic idea is what I call you awake the innerpreneur. So if you have what it takes inside to do this, you may not even realize it. In fact, doctors are so used to being told they're lousy business people, they start believing it. And it's not true. You know, I think about the skill sets. And I was a pre-med track kid, right? In college, no economics, no business, no sales, no marketing. I mean, it was biology, math, and right. chemistry, right. and a weird one-hour computer course, Fortran and Cobol. Right. We had a computer right. on campus. Right. And I think about the diverse needs and changes within the medical community. Yeah. And I have my own concerns about the medical community and what they're going to do. Well, there's a lot of concerns, but which concerns particularly do you have? In the day, physicians would have their practice. They'd own their building. They built a business whether they wanted to or not, but they had a business and they had, had something of value and now they're employees. And your concern is? I don't know what they're going to do for retirement. So from a financial perspective, from a risk management perspective, not too long ago, I was in a class in front of maybe 40 or 50 medical students talking about physician entrepreneurship and their eyes are like glazing over. And I say like, how many of you want to go out and start your own private practice? Like one hand went up. And Why? Well, just to dig a little deeper, the reasons have to do with work-life balance, mm -hmm. have to do with lifestyle, have to do with student debt. A lot of it has to do with student debt. Mm -hmm. The average medical student graduates with $183,000 in student debt. And that's not a specialist, is it? You're not even in the residency. Yeah. You're just done medical school. But this is average. Some are 300,000, 400,000, some are less. Mm -hmm. Now that's if you don't marry another indebted medical student. And typically a lot of medical students marry other medical students for obvious reasons. Now you're stuck with twice. Mm -hmm. So what's that mean? You don't buy a house, you don't get married, you don't have kids. And you could make the argument, and it was just a recent article yesterday about documenting the fact that millennials don't buy houses as much as your our generation. There's a reason. Well, the main reason has to do with student debt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're risk averse. And they went through the Great Recession, et cetera, et cetera. So they don't want to do all that. And we work mm -hmm. in a neighborhood, pretty much mostly everybody that works around here, they live in apartments. They don't own. But anyway, that's what's going on. So the concern, what is the impact of corporatization of American medicine on innovation? That's my question. Now, that may not be your question. Your question may be financial security and risk management. Are they putting enough money away for retirement? Well, you know, the thing I'm interested in for you is when you have that entrepreneurial physician show up and they go, Well, let me just point out yeah. that 
as again, it gets back to the point of creating companies. There are many different kinds of physician entrepreneurs in different kinds of roles. Some you alluded to, for example, someone who starts a private practice basically runs a small to medium enterprise business. Mm -hmm. You can be a technopreneur, somebody like I example where you're trying to get an idea or a gadget to the market. Mm -hmm. You can be an intrapreneur, an employed physician trying to add user-defined value in your organization that hopefully is aligned often is not. You could be a physician inventor. You could be a physician investor. Mm -hmm. You could be a service provider. You could do a whole lot of different things as a physician entrepreneur that has nothing to do with starting a company. So is the fact that more and more people are becoming employed physicians, does that create problems in terms of growing physician entrepreneurship? To the contrary, my argument is let's just assume people are going to go to work for corporate America, for corporate sick care. Those organizations need internal innovation more than ever. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they have to have physician intrapreneurs. In your recollection, in any of the medical school curriculum, is there anything about entrepreneurship? or No. Now, that's changing. Mm -hmm. So, back in the day, when I went to medical school, people couldn't spell physician entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And through a number of interventions, some of which I hope what we're doing made a difference, and I certainly don't claim to be the great needle mover, but it's part of a trend. So, as a result, actually more and more bioentrepreneurship education programs have been created. I've been involved in creating several of them at the University of Colorado. We were sort of an early adopter of this, and we kind of informed other programs. But over time, lots of folks now are creating bioentrepreneurship education programs in all different kinds of ways. Courses, certificates, degrees, online, face-to-face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and they're all over the world. This is a global problem. The problem being an infinite demand for care with limited resources in mm -hmm. every place in the world. So the question is, how do you manage that? My answer, innovation. Are you finding with the advent of data collection, or at least the adoption of data collection, machine learning, right. are you seeing much interest or development in solutions based on data and machine learning? Absolutely. But it's at the top of the hype cycle. Okay. The Gardner hype cycle. So I'm very involved in various things and education and that's why I'm here. I work for a company called Clyexa. I'm the chief medical officer mm -hmm. that is based in this building. And basically, they're a digital health company that does patient-reported outcomes. So what's happening is digital health, use of information and communications technologies to exchange medical information. Digital health, artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, mm -hmm. all the bright, shiny objects are being converged in an attempt to demonstrate value. Now, have they? That's another story. Has digital health, big picture, and digital health incorporates a lot of different categories, telemedicine, remote sensing, artificial, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Has digital health made a difference? And some would argue, no. Some would argue it's snake oil. Can you point to use cases where it has made a difference in quality, cost, user experience, 
patient-doctor experience? Yes, but it's changing so quickly that the adoption and penetration of medical technologies takes a very long time. If you have an AI-based right. database and right. you see a particular outcome because right. you can look, right. do you think the FDA is up to speed? No, and the FDA admits they're not. It's not my opinion. It's their opinion. And that's typical. I mean, that's the history of innovation. Entrepreneurs and innovators are leading indicators. Mm -hmm. Regulators and politicians are lagging indicators. It's the history of the Industrial Revolution and all innovation. So the FDA is struggling with whether and how to get their arms around digital health technology and regulating it. Examples are artificial intelligence, clinical decision support systems, telemedicine, electronic medical record interoperability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Cybersecurity, data security, they're trying to get their arms around all this. And incidentally, it's not just the FDA. It's the FCC. Sure. It's the FTC. It's yeah. everywhere. And what, yeah. yeah. I don't think they pay the regulators enough to attract the best and brightest. I mean, I know several of these people and, you know, they're very dedicated public servants and God knows we don't pay them enough and everybody's jumping down their throat, telling them whatever they do is wrong. And again, the history of the FDA is about their mission is to protect consumer safety. Mm -hmm. They've assumed this business of blocking innovation. So you have to balance how do you facilitate innovation with protecting the public safety? Mm -hmm. And that has been since the inception of the FDA. It still is. And it's just a question of politics and economics and drivers and money and all this stuff. So who wins? The recent Supreme Court nominee may make a decision. It's a big deal about administrative law. How do you feel about the FDA? We have a course in bioentrepreneurship and we actually have a whole section on the FDA. And so it's a very interesting story in history and how the FDA works and the political issues and all that. So I keep your eye on this Kavanaugh nominee because it will have an impact on administrative law. I get fascinated and the joy of doing the podcast is, you know, you're really deep in this one area and I get to pick up the covers and look underneath, which I truly enjoy, you know, and for the folks that are out there going like, how do I find your organization? How do right. I reach out to you? What's right. the best way to find the organization? The best way to do it is to go to our, so our website, www.sopenet.org, and you'll see a list of chapters around the world. I'm all over the internet. So if you just check out my LinkedIn thing, Arlen Myers. There's a gazillion different ways you can get in touch with me, and I'm happy to do it. And Myers is M-E-Y-E-R-S. M-E-Y-E-R-S, yes. Well, shifting gears a little bit, I'm assuming that you're an avid reader. What's the most recent or influential book that comes to mind? So lately, I've been wrapped up in How Do We Win the Fourth Industrial Revolution? And your viewers or listeners may not be familiar with that term, but the Fourth Industrial Revolution is a mental mindset that describes the evolution of industrial revolutions in the world. So the first one was, it's basically what drives an economy in terms of an industrial economy. So the first one was water, like water mills mm -hmm. and steam and all that. The second one was electricity. I would remind people that it took a hundred years from the discovery of electricity to it actually being transformative in the society. In Tennessee, I believe in 1922, 15% of Tennessee had electricity until the TBA came in. It's like electric cars. It's going to take a gazillion years for all that to happen. It's going to happen, mm -hmm. but it, you got to build the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's like television. The guy who invented the TV, nobody even knows who he is. Fiber optic is like the railroads of years right. ago. 
You had to add a network. You had to add NBC or CBS before the television could make a difference. It's the same thing. Computer, same deal. So first industrial revolution, water. Second industrial revolution, electricity. Third industrial revolution, computers. Fourth industrial revolution, convergent intelligence. So what does that mean? It means big data, cloud storage, mobile access, nanomaterials, precision medicine, robotics. It's the collision of all of these technologies. And just like each of the previous things that drove the revolution, who could ever predict the impact of the Macintosh and the personal computer on society? Mm -hmm. Nobody. And that was like, what, 15, 20 years ago? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I can still remember sitting in a meeting in a Merrill Lynch group where the guy that ran the division said, the internet is a fad. Well, you and I go to the computer in the room and you had to reserve Fortran time. Anyway, same deal with the fourth industrial revolution. So that brings up, I'm getting an answer to your question, which incidentally is I'm rereading Frankenstein. And I'll tell you why. Because Frankenstein was published in 1818 by Mary Shelley. So now we're celebrating 200 years of the publication of Frankenstein. It speaks to the issue of science and society. Now, the steam engine was invented in 1775. So we're talking 25, 30 years later. People are beginning to see the industrialization of rural England. Oh, by the way, 93% of people in colonial America at the time of the revolution were on a farm. Do you know what percentage of people now live on a farm and produce like 10 times the amount of food for the rest of the world, 1% of Americans live on a farm. So it's a reflection of how this changes society. So the question is, how do we win the fourth industrial revolution? It gets to your point of you're worried about doctors. Mm -hmm. How do we train doctors to win the fourth industrial revolution? How do we train your kids to win the fourth industrial revolution? Because your dad worked, other than the military, one job all the time. Exactly. I worked one job. I'm a dinosaur. I went from high school. Actually, I went from elementary school to finishing my residency in whatever, how many years that was, a long time. I got a job as an academic assistant professor. I stayed at the same place for 40 years. It's not how the world is not these days. No. no, it doesn't work that way. So how do we provide the knowledge, skills, and abilities for students to win the fourth industrial revolution. You know, if you're looking back over your career, a failure that perhaps you experienced that helped you progress down the road. Oh, I've had a bunch of failures. I mean, I started a digital health company that failed. And as someone who was trying to change a system, and again, working at the University of Colorado, state-owned institution, I work in the three most change-resistant industries in the United States, higher ed, sick care, government. Every time I try to do something, you bump up against a lot of resistance. And I have I put some points on the board? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame on my batting average, but I've accomplished enough. And I think I've made enough of a personal difference, at least I feel, that it motivates me to keep doing it because I understand the forces of change encounter enormous resistance. That's just the way the world is. It's inertia. It yeah. is. For you, looking at allocation of time or initiative, what's helped you the most? Making priorities and just following what matters most. 
spending time on what matters most. Just decide what that is and prioritize your time and do it. If somebody was to say that you have an unusual habit or something that's out of the ordinary that's helped you, what would that be? I think, well, I developed a habit of writing every day. I used to be terrified of writing. It's a long story and it reveals some psychopathology, but now I started doing it and now literally I write every day. And I would say that in terms of this modern world, in terms of communication, it's really a skill that people should hone. And even if it means just writing 500 words a day, you don't have to publish it. Just write it. And eventually, you'll publish it. And so that's what I do. And that's probably the thing that I've benefited the most from. What do you think the biggest misconceptions that folks have about you? That doctors are lousy business people. They're not. I run around with people who are really good at this. And my concern is, as I said, doctors believe it. They shouldn't. You know, looking back over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to? The people that I work with. I think the biggest problem in getting this stuff done is picking the right people because you can waste a lot of time with folks that raise their hand and don't show up, that don't honor their commitments, that don't really know what they're doing, that aren't willing to learn, that don't look at their blind spots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It really comes down to working with the right folks. Last question. If uh, you were to reach back in over time a quote that you found meaningful or one that you use frequently? Well, my favorite quote, and I think I sent it to you, was the one by Machiavelli in the 1500s, and it speaks to this notion. It's the advice to the prince and what it's going to take to change because you have all, I can't state it as eloquently as he could, but you could just look it up on Google, and it really speaks to the vested interests that resisted change and how much effort it takes to really make meaningful change. It just is really hard, and particularly when you're talking about 20% of the GDP, sick care, or higher ed, or these government, you know, these huge wicked problems, takes a lot of effort. Arlen, I tell you, I really appreciate you taking the time today. That was my pleasure. It was fun. Podcast. So thanks again. My pleasure. You See bet. ya.